But I invite you to open with me this morning to Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18, and we're going to study that chapter together this morning. You know, Valentine's Day is tomorrow. And some of you guys said, uh oh, y'all forgot. Well, there's your reminder. Valentine's Day is tomorrow. I'll go ahead and clue you in. The shelves at Walmart are indeed bare. I found out yesterday. So you're a little late to the game, as I was last night. Um, but hey, we'll be praying that God would bless your journey there if you still got to go. And even though Valentine's Day is tomorrow, um, the title of the sermon is not Make God Your Valentine. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. But I assure you that some preacher somewhere is preaching that very sermon this morning. That's his title. You might have heard that one before. And in the South, we like to say, bless his heart. But I do want to talk about Valentine's Day for just a moment. You see, the problem with Valentine's Day is that it's, it's just one day. We buy flowers. We buy chocolates. Cards and all sorts of gifts to remind our significant other that we love them. And while that, for that one day, they may, may be reminded of our affection, it's just not adequate to demonstrate genuine, true love. It's just one day. But genuine love for another is lasting love. It's not just for a moment. It's love that endures through good times and bad, and, and certainly for the other 364 days of the year. But I think we would all agree that that's how we treat God sometimes. A momentary sort of love. We may not be preaching about God being our valentine this morning, but I think many of us treat him that way. We love him when it's convenient. We go to him when we need something. We treat him in many ways like a sort of divine vending machine. We put a few quarters of our devotion in and we expect a snack of his cosmic power to somehow be dispensed for us. The passage we're going to look at this morning, though, is a beautiful reminder of what genuine fellowship and intimacy with God should look like. You see, we've seen Abraham's faith and his affection for God grow over the last few weeks as we've watched his life. We've seen him mess up. He's made mistakes along the way. We highlighted those. But we've also seen God's grace towards him. And here in chapter 18, we see that he comes to understand that grace and that intimacy and that love for him in a new and fresh way, in a very physical way right here in chapter 18. We're going to see how God shows him his love for him. But here's really where I want to take us this morning and what I want you to hold on to for the next 30 minutes. God's love for us leaves us with great responsibility as well. That's not the main idea of the message this morning, but I want you to hold on to it. When we recognize and understand that God truly loves us, it should leave us with a sense of responsibility and a weight that we're going to carry. And while that may seem foreign to you at this moment, if you hold on for 30 minutes, at the end of this morning, I think you'll walk out of here carrying that weight. 
Genesis chapter 18, beginning in verse 1, if you'll stand with me and honor the reading of God's word. I'm just going to read down through verse 8, not the whole chapter. The word of the Lord is this. The Lord appeared to Abraham at the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance of his tent during the heat of the day. He looked up and he saw three men standing near him. When he saw them, he, he ran from the entrance of the tent to meet them. He bowed to the ground and he said, My Lord, if I've found favor with you, please do not go on past your servant. Let a little water be brought that you may wash your feet and, and rest yourselves under the tree. I'll bring a bit of bread so that you may strengthen yourselves. This is why you have passed your servant's way. Later on, you can continue. Yes, they replied. Do, do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent and he said to Sarah, Quick, knead three measures of fine flour and make bread. Abraham ran to the herd and he got a, a tender choice calf. He gave it to a young man who hurried to prepare it. Then Abraham took curds of milk and as well as the calf that had been prepared and set them before the men. He served them as they ate under the tree. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you love us. And God, I pray that you use your word this morning to challenge us to leave here today with a weight of responsibility concerning your love for us. Bless the reading and proclamation of your word in a way that only you can. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. If you've got a listening guide in front of you this morning, normally I, I give you the main idea of the sermon and then we go through several points that are making that clear in the passage. But this morning we're going to kind of build that main idea as we go. Okay, so I've kind of given that to you in the main headings of the sermon. You're going to see that we're going to build on the same statement as we go through the passage and, and then we'll see some things along the way as well. As we look at these first eight verses, here's what we see. God takes the initiative to draw near to us. God takes the initiative to draw near to us. Now, we've got to understand how we got here to chapter 18. So don't forget Abraham's demonstration of faithfulness and commitment at the conclusion of the previous chapter. We saw that Abraham, through his activity, sealed the covenant between he and God. But, but as the dust settled on that event... Abraham and Sarah, they moved about with their daily lives. As we look at verse 1, we find that Abraham was in his choice dwelling place. We find this place come up again and again. This is, remember, Abraham lived in a tent with his family, and he could move wherever he wanted to go. But he loved to stay at this particular location. He felt most content and most at home at this place. Within sight, or at least nearby, was the altar he had built to commemorate his encounter with God, just many years earlier and a few chapters back in our reading. And so God had already encountered Abraham here once before. This wasn't foreign to him. But there he sat at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. All the day's work had been done. We see that. They're in the heat of the day. They were kind of having a siesta after everything was finished. He was resting. Everything seemed quite ordinary. I like to imagine that maybe Abraham dozed off just a little bit. He had that good kind of tired at that time in the afternoon. And as he dozed off, much to his surprise, he opened his eyes and there they were, three men standing in front of him. God showed up. I want you to look at the verses with me again, verses one and two. And don't miss the weight of this. 
the Lord appeared to Abraham. The Lord appeared to Abraham. Now we've seen God do this in Abraham's life back in chapter 12 and verse 7 during the first calling of Abraham to this new life. And then in chapter 17 and verse 1, we saw this last week. Again, a a pivotal moment in Abraham's life. God appears to him. He changes his name and he changes Sarah's name. When God shows up, some big things start to happen. You say, well, God's talked to Abraham off and on throughout his life. For sure. God had spoken to him again and again and again. But if you look back, there's only a couple of occasions where it says the Lord appeared to Abraham. So this should catch our attention. Don't get lost in the routine encounters that Abraham had with God and miss the wonder of the moment. We see in verses 4 and 5 then that that Abraham pleads with his surprised guests for them to stay for a little while. Then at the end of verse 5, they agree to stay with him. Abraham then washes their feet and he gives them an appetizer of bread. The, The word there is that it's literally a morsel of bread. He gave him exactly what he had. He had nothing else. But the scene intensifies in verses 6 through 8. The whole tent side is thrown into a frenzy as Abraham, Sarah, and the servant, they try to throw together this feast or this meal for the guests. The extravagance of the meal should not be overlooked here. Keep in mind, there were only three guests that day. But notice how specific we find this reading here, that how he prepared this meal. It says there that he had these many measures of fine flour that were prepared for them. This would have been the equivalent of about five gallons of flour that they needed together and baked the bread that day. This was a feast for them, and there were only three. And then he goes to his servant boy, and he says, I need you to prepare this choice calf. Listen, there were three men there that day, and they slaughtered an entire calf to feed these three men. It grew to a feast fit for a king. Now, at this point in the passage, it's not entirely clear But it appears that Abraham knew something was up with his guests. Notice that the guests don't reveal their identity just yet. We know that it's the Lord because we're reading it now. But Abraham did not know exactly who this was just yet. But here's what we learn about this meal. You see, when God shared a meal with people in this culture, or when meals were shared between two parties, it was a demonstration of intimacy with them of fellowship with them. If you're taking notes this morning, it teaches us this. God demonstrates his intimacy with Abraham by sharing a meal with him. Now, this isn't all that strange to us in this culture or really to any culture around the world. As many of you know, I've been trying to lose a few pounds recently. No one should have giggled at that. (laughs) Cleve, I heard you. Cleve tries to laugh at all the jokes. That wasn't a joke. That was serious. Here's the joke. Do you know why I'm trying to lose weight? It's your fault. That's serious. Listen, I got here as your pastor and you fed me well. I I eat way too many meals at Southern Flavor. I I, I eat way too many meals at Creekside across the street and, and local Joe's. I love to go fellowship with people. Why? Because we fellowship with people when we want to get to know them. It means something to share a table with somebody. Don't miss this. God came to supper with Abraham. God was Abraham's friend. This was a big deal. No one else, no one else in Scripture 
gets to share a meal with God apart from the disciples and Abraham. Catch that? It's a big deal that God shared a table with Abraham. In James chapter 2 and verse 23, if you want to just jot that in the margin there, we read this about Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. Then at the Last Supper, again, Jesus shares a meal with the disciples because he was their friend. And we know this to be true because of what he said in John chapter 15 and verse 15. He said this to them. I do not call you servants anymore because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I have called you friends because I've made known to you everything I have heard from my father. Friends of God. What an incredible thing to be called. But here's what's beautiful about this. The same intimacy that was available to Abraham and the disciples is also available to us. The same friendship, the same bond, the same love, the same relationship that he had with Abraham and the disciples he can have with us as well. I love what the psalmist says in Psalm 34 in verse 8. David writes this. He says, taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the person who takes refuge in him? No, friend, we may not have an opportunity to sit down at the table with God now. We may not have that privilege. But every single time that we open his word, we sit at the table with God. And by the power of his spirit, we feast upon that. And yes, if you'll listen close, if you'll take it all in, you'll taste and see that the Lord is good. What does this mean for us? We should, take every, we should take advantage of every possible means to cultivate this intimacy with God. God has given us an opportunity to know him, therefore we should take advantage of this opportunity to know him. What did Abraham do? The Lord showed up, or these mysterious figures showed up, and he's running around his tent site, throwing together this meal. Why? Because he was anxious about his guests. When we understand the weight of what we hold in our hands with the very word of God, we will approach it with the same anxiousness and the same anticipation, friends. We should pray, read his word, spend time with other believers, come into worship with enthusiasm and excitement. We should do all of these things because God says, just as he was Abraham's friend and Peter's friend and John's friend, he is indeed our friend. We are friends of God. But notice this as we build on our main truth moving into verse 9. We saw that God takes the initiative to draw near to us. But now notice this. So he can strengthen our faith. There's a reason behind it. There's a blessing with it. God's presence comes with this blessing. The attention turns to Sarah in verse 9. Look at the text. They asked him, where is your wife, Sarah? And then in verse 10, God reaffirms his promise to Sarah from before. Notice what he says. The Lord said, I will certainly come back to you in about a year's time, and your wife Sarah will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent behind him. This was a cultural norm that as a lady, she was not going to be allowed to be at the table side with them. It wasn't that she was afraid of the guests. It's just where she was supposed to be. So don't read too much into that. But she was listening. There was anticipation in her heart. Remember, we noted that in verses 1 through 8, the identity of the visitors was maybe still a bit unclear to Abraham. 
But two things here in verses 9 and 10 make clear that the Lord is indeed with him, and a light bulb certainly went off in the life of Abraham. First of all, the Lord uses the new name given to Sarah from the previous chapter. Who changed that name? God did. Only God and Abraham knew that name, but suddenly these mysterious guests, they show up and they know that name. Abraham started to get the picture. But then, it's so sweet, God reminds them of those promises as he continues to talk to them. The Lord reaffirmed the promises given from the previous chapter, and guess what? He does that word for word. No doubt at this point, Abraham was hanging on every word from his new guests. He understood something was up. But then notice this. The tension of the situation was made clear once again if we continue reading into verse 11. There's a detail given to us that's not new to us as we've worked through these passages together, but it's worth reading again. Abraham and Sarah were old and getting on in years. Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. The tension is this is an impossible situation that this promise could not come true apart from the intervention of God. It was clear that it was a hopeless situation. And so then Sarah, with dejection and hopelessness and a weak faith, mocks God's promise by laughing at the prospect of giving birth in old age. Notice what happens in verses 12 through 15. So she laughed to herself. After I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I have delight? But the Lord asked Abraham, why did Sarah laugh saying, can I really have a baby when I'm old? Is anything impossible for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will come back to you, and in about a year, she will have a son. Sarah denied it. I, I did not laugh, she said, because she was afraid at this point. But he replied, no, you, you did laugh. This argument, this exchange, it paints a picture of intimacy with God and how God was working something wonderful out in the life of Sarah. Understand something. It says there, Sarah laughed to herself. I think we, we imagine this to be some sort of cackle from behind the tent curtain. That's not what it was. In secret and out of the way, she's hearing the conversation, and she giggles to herself, perhaps not even audibly, and yet the visitors knew that she had laughed. There was something special happening. And so then the visitors begin to interrogate and ask questions and then reaffirm the promise. Here's what we learn. Don't miss this. God knew Sarah's innermost doubts, but he did not push her away. Instead, he reminded her of his promises. Isn't that beautiful? God knew her heart. He knew her doubts. He knew her worry, her anxiety, her emptiness, her dejection as she had seen the servant girl Hagar bear a child for Abraham. He knew the hurt in her heart and yet he didn't push her away. He drew close. He drew close. Perhaps you remember the 1998 movie Dr. Doolittle. I got a screenshot of that you can throw up there. Now you remember, okay? Really hilarious movie. This is a great scene from that movie. You see the, the mouse, or we're just going to call it a rat. Mice are cute. Rats are ugly, okay? These are rats on the table. One of them sitting there, and it's clear that Dr. Doolittle is talking to that rat. 
and the other one is laying lifeless on the table. Now, these creatures are disgusting. I mean, they're despicable. Anybody else would have thrown them out. But Dr. Doolittle could hear what they were saying when no one else could. In fact, some other doctors walked in in this scene, and they said, what in the world is happening here? He's talking to the rats. Well, because he could hear the rats' voices when no one else could, it was plain to him there was a heart condition with the one that's laying lifeless. And so then, in just a moment of hilarity, he performs CPR on the rat. I mean, repeatedly, not once or twice. And he was successful. It was wonderful. The rat was alive. Again, he knew the, the thoughts of these rats, and so he drew close. Now, this is really a cheesy illustration, but listen carefully. That's how God operates here. God knew the innermost thoughts of Sarah. And instead of pushing her away as someone who was disgusting and one who had a weak faith and saying, no, I don't have time for that, he drew close. He was intimate. He wanted to know her. I love Psalm 139, verses 1 through 4. Y'all can take that off the screen now if you want to. There you go. There's the next point. I just didn't want it to be a distraction any longer. Psalm 139, verses 1 through 4. David writes this. Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I stand up. Listen, you understand my thoughts from far away. You observe my travels and my rest. You are aware of all my ways. Before a word is even on my tongue, you know all about it, Lord. He knows our hearts. And yet, he gets closer to us. I read it this way this week. No human, whether in a dark rainforest or atop a Manhattan skyscraper, has a thought that is not known of God. He perfectly knows all things. He has never wondered at anything. He has never been taken by surprise. He has never forgotten anything. He has never been mistaken. Write this down. God knows our hearts, and he still chooses us. He knows the wickedness of our hearts, and he still chooses us. This should flood our souls with joy. Tears should flow down our faces at the wonder of the fact that that God who knows us better than we know ourselves, he still chooses us. You and me, us, the vilest of sinners, God knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows our doubts. He knows our restlessness. He knows our anxiety. He knows our emptiness. He knows our darkest secrets. And yet he still loves us and chooses to know us. And it's this truth that is the answer to the rhetorical question in verse 14. You thought I just missed that. This is the verse that everyone reads from this passage. They miss everything else. But let me, let me read it to you again, verse 14. Is anything impossible for the Lord? You see, all of that is couched within the statement and the laughter from Sarah. Here's the truth. If it is not impossible for God to still love us, despite our brokenness, then surely nothing is impossible for him. If he can love us, the, the most wicked and despicable of sinners, if he can love us in spite of that, then he can move mountains. If he can love us, if he can save us, then surely the dead can be made alive. 
The proof of God's miraculous activity is most evident in our salvation. The scene then shifts again as we get to verse 16. And we continue to see a clear picture of what God teaches us as he draws near to us by his initiative. Notice this. God takes the initiative to draw near to us so he can strengthen our faith. We saw this happen with Sarah. And expose the wickedness of sin. And all of this really affirms or reaffirms everything we've seen thus far. Because God's going to show Abraham what wickedness looks like all around him. And what it's going to do is teach him a little bit about himself as well. Look at verses 16 and 17. The men, they got up from there. They looked out over Sodom. And Abraham was walking with them to see them off. Then the Lord said, Should I hide what I'm about to do from Abraham? You see, the attention is once again on Abraham and God's decision of whether or not to invite Abraham into his plans is what the tension is now. God has a decision to make. Am I going to let Abraham know what's about to happen around him? But then notice what God does in verses 18 and 19. God says, Abraham is to become a great and powerful nation and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will command his children and his house after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. This is how the Lord will fulfill to Abraham what he promised him. Write this down. God revealed his plans to Abraham because Abraham walked with God and was an important part of God's redemptive purposes. Did you see that? It says, Abraham walked outside the tent with him. That word walk there is the same word that we read about Enoch earlier in Genesis. Remember that one? Enoch, he, he walked with God and then suddenly Enoch was no more. He, he was taken up into heaven. That same word is used here of Abraham. Abraham's walking with the Lord. And because he was close to God, because he was walking in step with God, that's the word picture here. And because he was a part of God's redemptive purposes, God said, yeah, I need to let Abraham know what's about to happen. Now, we're going to see the actions taken against Sodom and Gomorrah next week. But for now, make sure you don't miss this. Abraham was invited into the situation because he was a friend of God. You know, we also share plans with those closest to us. We don't share plans with everybody. But we share plans with those closest to us, those that know us best, or those that need to know. Y'all know that Sheree and I, we're planners. We like to lay everything out, and, and some, that causes some of you anxiety to know that I like to plan things. I know. It's okay. I do. I like to lay things out. So tonight, during the Super Bowl, while everyone else is, is hanging on every action-packed moment of that game, some of y'all are shaking your heads, and that may not be that great. Sheree and I are going to be sitting on the couch like we do every week, and we'll have our calendars open, and we'll be going through our week. We'll be talking about, okay, on this day, I'm going to have lunch with this person, or on this day, I've got a late day because it's Wednesday, and I'll be at church all day, so don't plan anything on Wednesday. And then she's going to say, well, on Tuesday, Rosie has a doctor's appointment, so make sure you're available to take care of the twins and do your work at the same time. And, and listen, we work all that out on Sunday night. 
Because I've learned some valuable lessons along the way. She better know what's going on. But we make all those plans. Why? Because she needs to know. She's close to me. You might do something similar in your life, but isn't it a beautiful reminder here that God shares with Abraham his plans because he's a friend of God? God then goes on to make clear just how wicked the people of Sodom and Gomorrah were and that his actions would be justified. Notice verses 20 and 21. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is immense, and their sin is extremely serious. I will go down to see if what they have done justifies the cry that has come up to me. If not, I will find out. These terrifying little towns were known by the cry of the oppressed and their extremely serious sin. You see, the word translated cry here in verses 20 and 21, it's repeated twice, but this word actually was a wailing of sorts. This was a, a, a cry that was made in terrible anguish and pain. And the dark picture is one of social oppression and brutality. In Exodus chapter 22, in verses 22 and 23, we read this word this way in this context. You must not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them, they will no doubt cry to me. And I will certainly hear their cry. So God is making it clear to Abraham, what I'm about to do is justified. And it's not just the sexual sins that is famous about Sodom and Gomorrah. Those are the things that we note most readily. But their more intense sin, perhaps, or a sin we should definitely make note of, is how they oppressed the foreigner. And how they oppressed the widows. And how they oppressed the fatherless. The cries of terror were rooted in that. Even though it's the obvious sins that may jump out at us, we must certainly see sin the way that God sees it. We also live in a world that is entrenched in sin and will face harsh judgment apart from God's grace. Just like God revealed to Abraham his plans, he's also revealed it to us. If we are indeed his friends, we make note of this. God has revealed the broken condition of the world to us through his word. He's told us how broken this world is. Even if we want to ignore it and look the other way, he's told us very clearly, Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, therefore just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all people sinned. We must make note that sin is serious. Abraham was invited to see the sin of those around him for exactly what it was. He was given God's perspective on sin, and so are we. In a world that seems to make sin cute, we must see it as God sees it, the gross thing that it is. Surely Abraham already knew of the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. But now God placed him in a position where he could no longer ignore it. And here's this reminder that I had for you from the very beginning. Remember I told you to hold on to something. Remember what that was? God's love for us comes with great responsibility. When we understand God's love for us, it should lead us to a burden. So as we continue to build out this main idea, we complete it here in verses 22 through 33. God takes the initiative to draw near to us so he can strengthen our faith 
expose the wickedness of sin, and teach us the depth of his grace. Notice the tension in verse 23. There Abraham stood, now aware in a very fresh way of the sin in just the valley over. And he had a decision to make. What was he going to do about it? God invited him into this moment and left it in his lap and said, all right, here it is. Here's the brokenness around you. What are you going to do with this? What follows is a passionate plea for the people of those cities that goes all the way through verse 33. For the sake of time, I'm not going to read it to you. But it is a beautiful petition that Abraham makes to God on behalf of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. He appeals to God's mercy and his grace again and again and again. And here's what we learn. Abraham had learned the depth of God's grace in his own life, and he desired that grace for others. Abraham knew of God's grace because God had shown it to him again and again, even though the reminders of his brokenness were all around him. His dysfunctional family, Ishmael, the wealth he accumulated back in Egypt, all of that reminded him of his sin and his brokenness. And yet, there he stood with the Lord, talking with him, eating supper with him just a few verses earlier. Abraham had learned a God-like compassion for others. The man who was known as a friend of God had become a friend of mankind. It's the same way for us. It works exactly the same. God's great grace in our lives should energize our mission to share it with a world in desperate need for the gospel. You see that burden? You see what happens there? God gives you his gospel to then share his gospel. God lavishes his love on you so that you then share his love. We don't come to this room and hear about this gospel just to be reminded of it and walk home with little care. We're reminded of this gospel because we begin to understand the world's desperate need for it. I invite Miss Vivian to come play softly on the piano. While she's doing that, I want to invite you into just a moment of personal decision right there where you're sitting. Something that you can do before you leave this room. Well, we've talked about how God is close. We've talked about how we've came to his table, the table of his word. We've feasted on this. We've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And it's left us with a sense of responsibility, a weightiness that we cannot ignore. So I've got a few questions for you. Abraham was aware of the sin in the valley over. What are the names of those around you who don't know Jesus? You see, Abraham knew the names of a few people in that place, and we, we know that Lot was there. He knew their names, just a few of them. But you know their names too. You know who those people are. They're probably in this room with you right now. Picture their faces. You know them. They know you. But they don't know Jesus. The same access to God that Abraham had as he pleaded with the Lord on behalf of the people of those wicked cities. We have that same access as well. 
Abraham appealed to God's mercy for those in a wicked place, and so should we. Except for us, it's not in the valley over, it's in the house across the street. Or maybe it's a family member. You share a home with them. It's a, it's a spouse, possibly. It's a child. You say, well, well pastor, I, I can't save them. I can't, I can't do that. And no, you can't. Abraham couldn't save the people of Sodom and Gomorrah either. He knew he was no match for God's justice in the face of such sin. But here's what he did know. He knew he could pray. He knew he could talk to God about it. And so the time of response for you, believer, is to plead on behalf of those folks. You know their names, you know their faces. As we sing in just a moment, I want you to pray right where you're at for them by name. Those are your people. Lift them up to the Lord. But, but secondly, if you don't know this Savior, this beautiful Savior that has came and, and visited with Abraham, he desires fellowship with you. And guess what we read in Scripture? This should really hit you right where you're sitting this morning. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25. It says, He is able to save completely those who come to God through him, since he always lives to intercede for them. That means that, that Jesus Christ himself makes intercession for you. He wants to know you. And we want to show you what that looks like. So I invite you, fill out a blue card this morning. Put your name on that, on that sheet and, and just say, hey, I want to accept Jesus as my Savior today. Put it in the offering plate as you leave. I want to reach out to you and talk to you more about that.